0: What I'm going to do today, what I want to do today, is a, a teaching that I uh, prepared a couple of years ago, maybe more for uh, a class I was teaching at Prairie Ridge Church, and uh, kind of following in Jason's uh, footsteps and wake from last week. Did he knock it out of the park, or what? Did he knock it out? He knocked it out of the park. It was so good. Anyway, I'm going to I'm going to go with a parable as well, and I'm going to tell you that. One of the uh, primary sources for me is also Kenneth Bailey, whom he mentioned uh, uh, yesterday, a guy who lived in uh, uh, Palestine uh, for, what was it, 40, 50 years, something like that. It was a long time, so he, knew, he knows that culture, all right? So we're going we're gonna to begin with a, just a, a reading of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, said Jesus, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Man, I could go on forever and ever about this teaching and what it might mean today, but let's just see where it takes us a moment, okay? Let's pray together. God, you have given us this word and invited us into conversation with you. And uh We pray that that conversation today might honor you and might be helpful to us in our walk with Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, oh, notice I'm using an iPad. I'm cooler than you, Jason. (laughs) Okay, so, I've never done this before, so it could be a disaster. But anyway, at the outset... Here's what I want you to know, kind of the overarching thing. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, it is about seeing. S-E-E-I-N-G. It is about seeing. It is about how we see ourselves. It is about how we see others. And it is about how God sees us. Now, Truth be told, we don't always see ourselves very well. We, we can be a bit like the little boy in one of Shel Silverstein's poems. Silverstein or Silverstein, I never know. But anyway, the poem is called Smart. All right, here it goes. My dad gave me a dollar bill because I'm his smartest son. And I swapped it to Mort for two shiny quarters because two is more than one. And then I took the two quarters and traded them to Lou for three dimes. I I guess he don't know that three is more than two. Just then along came old blind Bates. And just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes. And four is more than three. And then I took the to nickels to Hiram Combs down at the f- seed feed store, and, and the fool gave me five pennies for them, and five is more than four. And then I went and showed my dad, and he got all red in the cheeks and closed his eyes and shook his head. Too proud of me to speak. You know, like that smartest son, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are what we are not, and that others are what they are not. With the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, I'd suggest most of us have come to think it's it's a moralistic choice between pride and humility, and it's simply asking us to choose the one over the other. Well, then we could wind up praying, thank you, God, that I'm not like the Pharisee and then we'd be like him. But I'd suggest we need to remember that Jesus invites us to sit in these parables for a while, to to let them marinate, to, to let them take us to places we may not see coming. The parables of Jesus are a way in which Jesus speaks theological truths. That means truths that point us to God, truths about God. So let's unpack this parable with that in mind. Verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. To whom did Jesus address this parable? To whom? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. And who might they be? Well, some Pharisees are in the audience, no doubt. They were always lurking around. But also, Jesus' disciples were there. And perhaps even a tax collector is present or some other notorious sinner. So, what is this parable about? Seems like it could be about righteousness and how we look upon others two men went up to the temple to pray one a pharisee the other a tax collector two men went up to the temple to pray what do you what do you picture here perhaps you see two guys sort of like hanging out in a magnificent cathedral, praying by themselves, just the two of them, one in the front, one in the back, close to the doors he can get. But that's not what's going on here. These two are in attendance at a worship service in the temple. That's what Jesus' first century listeners would have heard and seen. Here's the real picture according to Kenneth Bailey. Two go to the temple at the same time. The temple, a place of public worship. The tax collector stands at a distance. At a distance from whom? From the Pharisee, possibly, or at a distance from the rest of the worshipers. Well, that, that's more likely. The tax collector asks God to have mercy on him, a sinner. In other words, the substance of his prayer is very simply atonement. Simply put, the tax collector wants his son dealt sin dealt with by God. So these two men have entered a place of public worship. They're in the temple. A lot of other folks. I want you to look me at, uh, with me at this diagram of the temple. Don't worry about whether you can see the words. I'm going to help you. Just do the best you can, okay? So these two men have entered a place of public worship, all right? Now, the grounds of the temple consisted of a number of courts, each of them a little higher than the one that went before it, with the Holy of Holies, that's number one, at, in the center and at the top, the highest court, the Holy of Holies could only be entered by the high priest, and only the high priest, and he could only enter it once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to offer the blood of sacrifice and incense before the mercy seat. The mercy seat, the place of God's appearance, the mercy seat, which was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was a veil, a curtain. Remember when Jesus died, took his last breath, the veil was split, that veil, a curtain. Below the veil was the holy place. That's number three. And the altar of incense, number four. Below those steps was the court of the priests. That's number five, court of the priests. Four priests only. And below it, and to the side, was the court of the Israelites. That's number six, on the side, for Jewish men only. Below it, and to the side, and outside, don't miss this, officially outside, don't miss this, ladies, particularly, located outside of the temple proper was the court of the women. Number nine, for women only, Well, so long as it was not that time of the month, you understand. And at the lowest level was the court of the Gentiles, number 12. Also clearly outside of the temple proper. In fact, it was way outside and way down. A total of 19 steps and a four-foot marble wall separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women, both of which were outside the temple. The Gentiles could enter their spacious outer court as tourists. They could look up to view the temple with envy, but they were allowed to go no further. Indeed, at intervals around that dividing wall, warning notices were posted. In Greek and in Latin, which read, not, no trespassing, but which read, in effect, trespassers will be executed. In other words, it was a capital crime, punishable by death, for a Gentile, a non-Jew, a heathen, to cross this dividing wall of hostility. That's what Paul would call all of these separation barriers. In Ephesians, he writes, Jesus is our peace, who has made The two, Jews and Gentiles, the two, one in the church, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Paul has the temple in mind as he speaks those words. He has those dividing walls in mind. And in his Galatian letter, Paul would say that in Jesus, the dividing walls between slaves and masters, men and women, were down as well. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he has the temple in mind again. Back to the parable. Look at the diagram. Where would the Pharisee and the tax collector be? Well, they'd be in the court of the Israelites, number six. For men only section. And it's likely somewhat crowded. Yet they were close enough to one another that the Pharisee can catch a quip quick peek at the tax collector, you know, when he lifts his eyes at that strategic moment in the story. Here's what's going on. This is a time of sacrifice. Twice a day at dawn, early in the morning, and then again at three in the afternoon, an unblemished lamb is being sacrificed, and the lamb's blood is sprinkled on the altar, number seven in the diagram, and sprinkled in a precise ritualistic way to atone for, to deal with the sins of God's people. Corporate prayer likely led by one of the priests, corporate prayer would be offered, and in the middle of such prayer, a silver trumpet would sound, along with the clanging of cymbals and the reading of a psalm, and then the officiating priest would disappear into the holy place to offer incense on the altar of incense. Here is what we must not miss, vital to the story when the officiating priest disappears into the holy place, that is the signal for private prayers to begin. Why? Because the sacrifice is complete. Because the sins of the people have been dealt with, and the separation barrier of sin no longer stands between God and the people God has now drawn near just as God promised. God will now surely hear their prayers. The parable continues in that precise moment. This moment when private prayers may be most effective. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or Even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Where's the Pharisee? Standing by himself, Jesus says. He's off in his own little corner apart from the other people. That's the picture Jesus wants his listeners to see. There is, this is clearly a particularly pious Pharisee. I mean a Pharisee of Pharisees, the best Pharisee of all. He does not want to be close enough to others to have them touch him or even touch his clothing because the others are likely unclean, ceremonially unclean so he stood by himself now he's likely also praying aloud which was common practice had you been there you would have you would hear the crowd singularly everybody praying aloud those listening to the parable as jesus tells it to them would also have assumed that the pharisee was praying and that he was praying loud enough to be heard by people around him This is, after all, a rather self-serving prayer. And the Pharisee is using the prayer to preach to those within his hearing and to preach about himself. He prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Those other people are the commoners around him, those who are not as serious about obeying God's law as this Pharisee. He is, remember, remember, he's a very devout man. He's, he is super serious about practicing his religion. How do we know that? Because he tells us. Before he finishes his prayer, he tells us just how religious he is. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. He's a, he's a, he's a tither big time. All right, But that's not all. The Old Testament law required him to fast. You know, don't eat. Only once each year. The Day of Atonement. His fellow Pharisees had declared that they were going to do it once a month. Twelve times a year. But this guy fasted twice each week, it is as if this Pharisee put his face on a billboard in Jerusalem with the caption underneath reading, a righteous man. A really, really righteous man. But look at it again. God, I thank you That I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. A proper prayer in that day, get this, a proper prayer would have been to confess one's sins, thank God for one's gifts, and then perhaps to petition, to ask God for help but he does none of these. There is no confession of sin because he is confident he is without sin. And his confidence is based upon his judgment of those around him. How he sees those around him, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. All are beneath him on the righteousness scale. When he has a point about the tax collector, he has a point. Most of those listening to Jesus would have despised tax collectors. They were fellow Jews working for the occupying power of Rome. They were traitors to their people. They collected taxes on Rome's behalf, exorbitant taxes. And the Romans let the tax collectors charge even more so they might line their own pockets, their job made them wealthy. Remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector, wee little man, had to climb up in a tree for fear of the crowd in order to catch a glimpse of Jesus? That's a tax collector. The Pharisee proclaims his righteousness based on how much better than others he is. He figures God judges on the curve. It, Is everybody familiar with the curve? Do they still do that today, right, in school? 100% is an A. Whatever the smartest person in the class, and by the way, in high school, we always had one who always got 100%, screwed everything up. (laughs) But, right, this guy thinks God judges on the curve, and surely he comes out with an A plus when compared to the others. And we circle back to Jesus' introduction to the parable. Remember it? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Beware, Jesus is saying pride goes before the fall. The parable continues. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. And he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Where's the tax collector standing? He would also be in the court of the Israelites, like the men-only section. He, too, is participating in the worship ritual. He, too, can see the lamb being sacrificed for the sins of people, but he is at a distance from other people, backed away from them. I picture him near the Nicanor gate, ready to bolt at any moment. He'll be the first person out of the temple when the service ends. Now, normal posture for prayers in the temple is eyes down, arms crossed over the chest like a servant before a master. In fact, but uh, what, do you think the Pharisee assumed that posture? Can you see him assuming that posture? Not likely, right? In fact, we know he was looking up because he observed the tax collector. Notice the posture of the tax collector. What does he do? He beats his breast, says to Jesus, says Jesus, he beats his breast, and what we know is that in that day, and in the Middle East today, according to Ken Bailey, it's only women who beat their breasts, not women. And it's only when they're in deep sorrow, when a really particularly difficult funeral goes, happens. they, they beat their breast. One time in the Bible it talks about men beating their breasts, women and men together at the foot of the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus. the distress was so strong. All right. So, look at this tax collector. God have mercy on me as sinner. What's the source of his deep distress? His sin, right? He, he feels it deeply. Interesting, Luke, at least I think it's interesting. That's all that matters, right? Luke could have used one of two Greek words, both of which can be translated mercy but one of them has an important nuance one of them might better be translated lord make an atonement for me a sinner and luke uses that one it is as if the tax collector is asking for a second lamb to be sacrificed just for him his sin is so deeply felt this confession of his sin, so genuinely offered that he senses an entire sacrifice will be needed just to cover the sin that is his. And just then, just then Jesus delivers the surprise. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God which went home justified before God, those listening to Jesus in that moment did not expect it, did not see it coming. They would have totally expected the Pharisee to have gone away justified before God. It is what they were conditioned to think, the law-abiding one, the one confident in his own righteousness. Surely he would be the hero in the story, but instead Jesus blesses the tax collector, the horrible, terrible, really bad sinner who doesn't look at others, who doesn't compare himself to others, but who looks within and sees that before a holy God, he stands totally in need of atonement. He needs mercy. He needs grace. He has nothing to offer that will cause a holy God to see him as righteous. Back to the Pharisee. What's the root of his problem? Now we can go there. Pride, right? C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin, the mother of sin, the sin that gives birth to all others. In mere Christianity, Lewis writes that pride, don't miss this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, and better-looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being Above the rest, the sin of looking down. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. In his heart of hearts, the Pharisee likely knows that perfection eludes him as well. But if he can compare himself to the notorious... To robbers and evildoers and adulterers, and even this tax collector, his grade before a holy God goes up, way up. Can I give you three quick thoughts about pride? First, this one pride that leads to self congratulations and a judgmental attitude, what I like to call. Plank-in-the-eye pride. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Get the plank out of your eye before you try to get the little splinter out of your neighbor's eye. Plank-in-the-eye pride distorts our perception of reality about ourselves. (laughs) Kind of like the lady. The lady who went back to the photographer to look over her proofs. She stared at them in disgust and said, these pictures don't do me justice. The photographer looked at her and then at the pictures and said, Lady, you don't want justice. You want mercy. <laughs> plank in the eye pride distorts our perception of reality about ourselves. Second plank in the eye pride distorts our perception of reality about others. It keeps us from seeing the good, the best, and the value in others. It separates us from others, keeps us from learning from others, from seeing life from their point of view. Last, plank-in-the-eye pride distorts our perception of reality about God and our need for God. Pride convinces some of us that we really don't need God at all. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Pride convinces others of us that we don't need God much, that we can take care of ourselves and provide for ourselves. Thank you very much. Like the Pharisee, we have swallowed the lie that God probably needs us more than we need God. And finally... Jesus gives his prescription for pride. His antidote to pride. The vaccine, the miraculous vaccine for pride. He says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humility. Humility is that quality that God greatly values the tax collector had it he didn't have much else going for him friends he was a scoundrel he was he was a cheat he was a traitor to his people he was all those things he had lived life badly but now just now he knew that he needed God that he desperately needed God's mercy and God's grace that he wanted what he could not provide for himself And then, my friends, is genuine humility said, Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know they are utterly dependent upon God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's an old hymn. (laughs) We don't sing it anymore, and probably for good reason. It's it's, uh, it's a harder tune to sing or just, you know, anyway. But it's words. These words, opening words to this old hymn. There is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea, but the proud, the proud will never see God's mercy for they will always be too busy looking in a mirror, praising themselves and easily finding others to look down upon there is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea can I tell you a quick story years ago when our oldest granddaughter was two and a half maybe she was three I don't know just a toddler right like faith faith disappeared what you know right little just a little toddler and uh she was with her mom, maybe her grandma, I don't remember, and probably maybe with Renee and Aaron, because they had gone to Holland, Michigan, probably to visit, you remember this? And they were out uh, uh, on the beach, Lake Michigan, right? Big old Lake Michigan, they're on the beach. And Rachel walks down towards the beach, and I wish I had the picture, you know, but she walks towards the beach, and they got a picture of her just kind of staring at that. Staring at Lake Michigan, and all she could see is Lake Michigan. And she says, Big water. <laughs> Can you hear it, a little toddler? You ever been on the ocean or on one of the great lakes? Just out and I've been on the ocean. You know, I've been on the ocean where you get on the deck of the ship. And all you can see is water. It doesn't matter what direction you're looking. All you can see is water, 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 everywhere. That's what the hymn is getting at. There is a wideness in God's mercy, God's grace and God's love, like the wideness of the sea. Once you're riding on that mercy and grace and love, it's what you see. And if it's what you see, it's what you give. If it's what you see, it's what you give. To everyone around you, mercy, grace, love, acceptance, welcome, open arms. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Can we pray?